please note, episode 17 contains explicit language and mature content. I'll Meet You There by Cassandra Ricard Fall 2140 Richard slips in through the back door of the Center for Artificial Fornication Experience, the CAFE, grateful for the freedom granted by his position in the government's health department. He has had this wing cleared for the day, and so it is eerily quiet as he wheels his wife down the hallway into one of the newest rooms. He remembers the first time he brought her here, his blushing bride, a country mouse, as she would often call herself. She had never used a sex generator before, being from one of the few small communities left that eschewed modern technology, and where traditional intercourse was still the norm, where it had yet to become taboo. Spring, 2090. It had taken weeks for her to overcome her squeamishness enough to complete the required preferences assessment prior to their first visit. Richard, she had shrieked between gales of laughter. They can't really be asking this. Richard had leaned over her shoulder. She was on question 15. Please rate the following oral sex techniques in order of preference. Mark zero for any techniques you prefer be avoided. Kissing of the clitoris. Long sweeping tongue strokes. Quick darting tongue movements. Digital stimulation. Stimulation with artificial organs, e.g. dildo. Unsure. What? Do you understand the question? He had stroked her hair gently, remembering her innocence. It's okay, Melee. If you don't know, mark that. She swatted his hand away. I know. I just can't believe they're asking. Melee, we've been over this. If we don't complete the surveys honestly, filling in the circles fully for the Scantron, then the generator can't make sure we have an equally satisfying experience. He had cupped her face, looking into her dark brown eyes. Melee... I just want our first time to be special. She had raised her eyebrows at him, eyes moving from his earnest face to the survey and back. This is what you want? Yes, he had said. She had pulled away, shaking her head and settling back into the nook of their couch. Okay, then let's get to it. They had their first appointment at the clinic just a few days afterwards, taking advantage of a cancellation. He watched her walk around the machine. There was one long table for the participant to lie on, covered by a thin, self-replacing sheet of paper for hygiene. She trailed her fingers along the table, stopping at the end where a strap would soon cover her forehead, electrodes probing her most ardent desires. She nibbled her lower lip and slid a lock of dark brown hair behind her ear. "'You're sure it's safe?' she asked. He laughed, walking to her, wrapping his arms around her and resting his chin on her head. He had always loved that about her how her head fit just so under his. Of course it's safe, Melee. Much safer, they say. Okay, I think I'm ready. Good. He sighed, relieved. As an employee of the state's sanitary satisfaction clinic, he got a discount on the private rooms, but he still had only been able to afford an hour. As a middle-class married couple, they would be entitled to one free session every month and an insemination session twice a year should they choose but it would be rare to be assigned a private room for their monthly visits or to have one of the newer simulators. He watched as she hopped up on the table and laid back, arranging the strap over her forehead. Is this right? Perfect. Now close your eyes and tap the button by your hand. I'll meet you soon. He leaned back on his own table, slipping an emissions pad under his pants and settling the strap over his forehead. 
He had completed his form, and usually the generator combines the preferences of the two participants. But Richard had requested the generator focus on her preferences, and was anxious to see what he would find when the simulation began. Within moments, he found himself standing on a small island, no bigger than their bedroom. A blanket lay on the sand, a bottle of iced champagne on one corner near a plate of chocolate-covered strawberries. Then he saw her, and for a moment he saw nothing else. Her normally shoulder-length hair fell to her waist in wavy tendrils. Her always captivating dark eyes were chalked with coal, making them stand out even more. Her lips were shining in the moonlight. Like Diana or Aphrodite, she was draped in some kind of gossamer fabric, with just a hint of blue hiding and revealing all at once. Where the layers of her draping thinned, he saw one perfect nipple standing taut and dark against the fabric. She smiled widely, and the spell was broken. She was still splendid, but she was familiar again. Finally speechless, Richard? She paused, then gestured at him. You look pretty great yourself. He looked down and had to laugh. I look like Tarzan. He was in an animal skin that draped over one shoulder, and then came down to a skirt that covered his butt and genitals. You said you wanted special. He shook his head again. Tarzan? She walked towards him, and his amusement died as he saw the way the light breeze played peekaboo with the gossamer and her lithe frame. She wrapped her arms around him. Me, Jane. You're Jane. Forever. He had loved her then, and the hour felt like a lifetime. She liked long, slow strokes. Later that year, it was his turn to blush and squirm as she convinced him to let her show him how their ancestors did it, how it was still done in those small enclaves scattered throughout the country. After that, they only went to the generator a few times each year, just often enough to keep up appearances, to keep any whispers from starting, whispers that could have ruined his rising career with the state health department. At home, with the curtains drawn and the doors locked, they touched, kissed, made love, and fucked. She was right. The cramp in his calf, the rug burn on his knee the next day, the time he nipped her too hard and left a small bruise on her left breast. These imperfections could be mimicked by no machine. As they got older, they stopped going to the machine at all. With his economic rise, most would just assume they had added one to their house. Fall 2140 When Melee was new to the city, Richard had explained to her that the truly elite had these machines in their homes, and there were trimmed-down models that were becoming more affordable for the middle class. One day soon, he had promised her, they would be able to get one of those. Now he wishes he had kept that promise just for this last time so that if they couldn't touch for real, they could at least be in their home. He looks at her now, limbs too weak to stand, IV tubes connected through a permanent port in her chest, veins big and blue against her thinning skin. The eyes, though, still are hers. In the mornings, before the drugs kick in at least, the eyes are still hers. Age ravages us all, he thinks, not for the first time, but how unfair for her body to fail while his still thrives. In a moment of clarity, she had begged him to bring her here one more time. He is still worried about the toll it might take, but could not deny her anything. Not now, when the end felt so near. Now, in the simulation room for one last time, he kneels before her, looking into her eyes, placing a hand on her knee. This is what you want? She smiles slowly, placing a hand on his and nods. Gently, he lifts her up onto the table, laying her down and securing the strap over her forehead. Perfect. He strokes her cheek. Close your eyes, he says, pushing the red button for her. I'll meet you soon. He goes to his own table, and soon they are back together on that small island. 
She is twenty-two again, gossamer threads covering a body he knows so well. They love passionately. Even though the sand doesn't itch and the wind doesn't chill, he wills himself to believe it is real. Afterward, heart-pounding with exertion, he strokes her arm, gazing into her eyes until she blinks out of the simulation. He wakes up and is again on his table. He looks over at the still body of his wife. There is no need to check. He knows she is gone. Close your eyes, he whispers. I'll meet you soon. Welcome to No Extra Words, the flash fiction podcast. My name is Chris Baker Dersha. I'm your producer and editor. I completely love that story. I love it when genres blend together and to mix science fiction with romance in such a way is so cool. The scene where she goes in this futuristic machine, this sex generation machine, and comes out as Aphrodite is completely amazing. The sort of time gap and references that you can see in that. I like to read old science fiction. I like to read sort of retro 1920s and 30s sci-fi short stories. And the thing that always gets me, the ones that feel so real, the ones that are like, dude, they got it right. They really did predict the future are the ones where they imagine this future that we are super disconnected to each other and only speak to each other through machines. And I totally realize the irony of me saying that as I'm talking to you into a recording that you're going to play in some device in your ear somewhere. But it is true, this disconnectedness that we feel. And I think Cassandra Ricard hits on that so perfectly in that story. And I just completely love the meld of sci-fi and romance that is I'll Meet You There. I'm going to make my commentary short because both the stories today are pretty long and I don't want to make this episode go on forever. I will only say about Jeff Dupuis' story that's coming up is it also talks about a future, but it's about the very, very near future when... Moments change moment to moment and your present suddenly becomes your future or you look around and you realize you're living in your future. That's what's coming up next. Jeff Dupuis' The Brunch Place. Have a great week. The Brunch Place by Jeff Dupuis. Isn't this unreal? You and I have adult lives, nine to fives. We pay taxes, have mortgages, use birth control. Fifteen minutes away by streetcar, you text me to make sure I'll be there. Gwen rests her head on my shoulder, her eyes focused out the window. She's an adult now, too, a long way from the girl she was in college, your roommate who could never say no to jello shooters, keg stands, and supers. That's my wife, I say in my head, looking down at her brown hair with blonde highlights, and I hardly believe it. She misses you, too, I think albeit in a different way. Five minutes out, we're getting off the streetcar near a massive open grave that'll just be another condo in the gentrified jungle that was once a textile district. You live in one of these glass towers growing upward like stalagmites. I know which one is yours close up, but from here they all look the same. The brunch place is in the foreground, cement and steel, tall windows, an industrial showroom with boutique trappings. Lars, Sean, Maddie, Cam, and Jen, 
All of our people are there, already in line, one name given to the hostess to secure a table. Loads of hugs and handshakes. It's nice. We don't get together enough. Life gets in the way. Now I don't remember loving you so much that it hurt, like you held a barbed knife in me and when you'd pull away it'd tear out something vital. When I think of you it's like lying on a beach with the tide rising, warm ocean waves covering my skin. The 2 a.m. phone calls, the confessions, the screaming, that time the cops came, it has all melted into the background. A few things stick out. Sitting on my bed, you told me you'd finally been with someone else, what it was like, how good he was, as if you didn't give a shit. But then you said I'm a little afraid, letting the blouse slip off your shoulders. We've been here before, I said. But what if my body's changed? So long ago, everything's changed. The washrooms of the brunch place are individual unisex rooms with an audio track from Air Canada playing an airline safety message in both English and French. The music playing in the hallway topped the charts when you and I were in high school. We have become the target demographic. You are waiting in the hall between the restrooms and the dining room, pacing. Can we talk, you ask? The answer is always yes. We push through a crowd at the door. The wait is going to be about an hour, the hostess tells a group of four as we brush past. Brunch was busy every Sunday. Today it's worse, with a third of the restaurant closed off for a bridal shower. Thirty-somethings, all blonde, carry gift bags, smile and hug, kisses on both cheeks. The wind matches the concrete, cold and hard. The smell of your hair reaches out to me. I am baptized in it. It feels like a victory lap for the two of us. So I found out that I'm pregnant. I am the food-crusted pot at the bottom of the sink. The faucet is running. I am overflowing. Wow. Julian must be freaking out, I say. I mean, like, over the moon. He doesn't know, you say. You're going to make the best mom in the history of childbirth. A tear rolls down your cheek, and I kiss it before it makes it as far as your jaw. The bat symbol tattoo on your stomach, on the decline below your navel and to the left, will stretch and spread and cradle the life growing inside. I feel blessed to be the first to know. Back at the table, my food awaits. Julian ordered the huevos monte, and he slides the white dish of ghost pepper sauce toward me. Try this, he says. Gwen looks on as I dip a fork into the hot sauce, then brush it across my tongue. Do you want to watch the Manchester game at your place or ours? Maddie asks Julian. Jen leans in to be seen past Cam and Lars. The front of her sweater drapes down dangerously close to skimming the buttered surface of her current scone. She parts strands of hair out of her face and behind her ear and says to you, So anything new? Can I get a refill, please? Gwen asks the waitress, pointing her perfect finger to her waiting cup. I've never felt closer to Julian. My granola is dry, flavorless, a serving too small for the price I am paying. For the first time in my life, I want to be a father.